Welcome, Ecom Logistics Nation. Thank you for joining today's episode. We're on a mission to share e-commerce logistics insights, trends, successes, and challenges from the leaders and innovators in our space. There's only two ways to incentivize people, or two ways to, to get people to change. One is through incentive, and one is through repercussions. And what I mean by that is either you're going to pay me more to do something, or you're going to punish me for not doing it. Welcome, Ecom Logistics Podcast Nation. Nanad and I are excited to welcome Eddie Hertzman, founder of Sourcing Journal, which was acquired by Penske Media Group and part of Fairchild Media Group. Eddie brings a really interesting perspective in global sourcing with a concentration on soft goods. And we definitely look forward to diving into the connection to supply chain trends and what Eddie's crystal ball is telling us about the future. Eddie, great to have you join us and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Welcome, Eddie. Welcome, buddy. Let's set the stage for everyone first by having you give your background story and as Simon Sinek would say, the why behind Sourcing Journal. So I feel most people know me today, obviously, because of Sourcing Journal. But the truth is, I'm, I'm not really a media guy. My background is, is in sourcing and wholesale. I spent about a decade primarily in South Asia, Dhaka, Karachi, India, China, Vietnam, working for some of the largest retailers and wholesalers. So that's how I really got into the business, worked for quite a big agency group, uh, ended up heading up their North America operations. So it really got me exposed to everyone from the Zaras of the world down to the 7th Avenue Garmento. And it was really in 2009 when the world was going through this cotton crisis and every day the prices kept going up, 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 and up. No matter what I quoted, I couldn't hold the price for more than 24 hours. I just remember this. I remember it vividly sitting in Dhaka trying to place 100,000 units of a very prominent brand. And the sourcing director said to me when I said, if you don't buy it today, it'll be more expensive tomorrow. He said, kid, I've been doing this longer than you've been alive. You're wrong. It was just one of those moments where I, it just hit me. I'm like, how is there no resource for this? It's got to be the Wall Street Journal of sourcing. Let me create the sourcing. So I bought the domain, started aggregating some things and 10,000 people signed up, 20,000 people. Then I started doing proprietary content. Then I started, you know, from a bedroom operation to 2017, sold it to Penske Media Group. Great organization. I mean, from the variety to deadline to Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, South by Southwest, WW. I mean, it's unbelievable what, what Jay has built and having the, the reputation and the resources behind us, our business has really taken off. And you could also argue that it's a little bit of lightning in the bottle. Who would have thought 12 years ago or 13 years ago now when I started that the whole world really shifted from front end being the most important, the runway, the sales, the marketing to now it's all about the supply chain. It's all about logistics. It's all about sourcing. It's all about sustainability. So if you don't have that right, it's been a wild couple of years to say the least. Absolutely. And, you know, we were talking to a few people that were like, we are also seeing new talent emerge within this space, right? Talent that didn't find this arena to be sexy, right? Like everyone wanted to go work in tech or in marketing or, you know, those fields, right? Like production, runways, etc. Now you are seeing really good talent, really willing to step into the supply chain because definitely I think supply chain is sexy, but it is starting to become more sexy, right? Like it's, it's everyone knows what we are talking about now. So it's interesting because I like to say that the CSO is the new CEO. If we look at H&M, look at who is running the company now. She didn't come from the sales side. Sourcing and sustainability is where she came from. And I think that for the first time and maybe ever, we have a seat at the table. We're in the boardroom and you're not throwing a tech pack at us and say, and make this for five cents cheaper. You're realizing that if you don't have merchandise, well, you don't have sales. 
And if you don't comply to regulation, you could have legal issues and you could be, you know, you could have greenwashing claims or you could also be canceled by, by, by your, your consumers overnight on social media. So it's so important. And also you think how logistics has changed, how Amazon has completely changed consumer expectation. You now, I used to joke, you used to have to predict red sweater in November, 100,000 units. Now I need the red sweater in 24 hours in to, to someone in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh, it's the wrong size. I need to be able to get a label in a box to this guy he, so he can return it. And I can't ship it back to a, a DC in Bergen County or Long Beach. I got to find the closest store or the closest, get it right back out. It seems simple. It's actually very expensive and very, very complicated. Absolutely. And it's to the point that you make, right? It's the reason why chief supply chain officers are now kind of stepping into those CEO roles is just because of the complexity, right? Like if you look at how complex the supply chain of each individual organization has ended up becoming and what they are doing to coordinate all of that, they are already running a company inside a company, right? Like the, with the amount of complexity they deal with, that is a natural course to become CEOs. And I think we are going to see more and more of that uh, uh, coming in the future. Yeah, and there's massive inefficiency because what a lot of people did overnight is, oh, I want BOPUS, get me BOPUS. Oh, I need, I need to do free, get me this, get me this, get me this, get me this. And so people tried to quickly implement a lot of strategies because I think people never took e-commerce as serious as really it should have been. And COVID really accelerated that. Now, to me, e-commerce doesn't mean having a website. Everyone has a website. It's the multi-channel. It's being able to sell to your customer where they are instead of making your customer come to you. That could be on TikTok or Instagram, but it's also going cross-border. It's being able to get the product to them quickly. You need a frictionless experience with that customer. And we saw the companies that really have invested in this and took this seriously really were able to do quite well. But I think there's, in, in the race to kind of set up some of this technology and implement some of these best practices, there's going to be a lot of undoing and redoing. And, and there's a lot of, in it. the supply chain is very, very inefficient. I think a lot of people think the supply chain is a secret sauce. An efficient supply chain is very, very valuable. But a supply chain in itself is, is, is not a secret sauce unless it's running at scale and it's running really, really efficiently. So I think a lot of people have a lot of work to do when it comes to really, you know, optimizing their back end. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you look at that 2010 time frame when kind of direct to consumer, oh, we got to do this, this e-commerce thing, right? Like, I remember working for certain companies back in 08, 09, 2010 timeframe that were like, oh, e-commerce, it's just like the thing that we have to do because everyone else is doing and implemented solutions around their distribution footprint as an example, right? Like, so whatever was fulfilling to their stores, they said, okay, let's do this little project on the side and it evolved right. from there. And it's such a significant part of the business now. And especially for the larger companies, it's much harder to decouple that. There's also the other side of it for the digitally native organizations, right? So the brands that grew purely off of like the growth of uh, Shopify as an example, right? Like that accessibility, that Instagram access, the Facebook access, the paid media, etc. One of the things we saw was the margins were good when you were brands, right? Like let's keep Amazon aside, but the margins were good. People were willing to pay for shipping and it was a good old happy, jolly time for everyone. And I think now the pressures have started building. It's much easier to get into e-commerce, 
right? Like people are finding through, you know, companies like yours. How do I do sourcing? And specifically pandemic sped that up so much that so many people got into this space that the margins are starting to thin and you need to find efficiencies within the supply chain, right? Like it was okay back then. It's no longer okay. You need to have a really good supply chain strategy if you are going to scale further. I'm happy you brought up DTC because this is a topic I think that needs a little bit more attention. A lot of companies package themselves as a tech company, went out and raised a lot of money on the promise that they were going to cut out the middleman, they were going to cut out retail, they were going to cut out wholesale, they were going to deliver a superior product at an affordable price at a better margin. And wow, we are digitizing this entire process. What we've seen in the past couple of years is this is not true. We did our conference a couple of weeks ago and Andy Dunn, I actually think I have his book, it's actually right here. He just wrote a book, Burn Rate. It's uh, launching a startup and losing my mind. Unbelievable guy. So candid about the struggles he's had personally, but I thought it was so interesting how he got on stage and said, I pretty much invented a terrible business model. And he said, you know, when you have a brick and mortar retailer, let's say you pay no more than 10% to your landlord. He goes, but I was paying 30, 40% to Meta. That's a very expensive landlord to get a customer. He goes, my most profitable channel was Nordstrom. Our most profitable, we were making money in the stores. They were, he was smart, very small footprint, very, you know, great locations, but no inventory in the store. So he had this kind of like, you know, try on, and other people are doing this now, but it was enabled him to get into brick and mortar very quickly and scale. But he says that part of the business was supporting his digitally native business. And he says, if you look at pure play digital, how many people other than some of the Amazons or whatever have really been able to turn this into a very, very healthy business. And I think as first party data becomes more and more important, the consumer acquisition costs are going through the roof. So yeah, five years ago, you and I could do Eddie's, Eddie's t-shirts and acquire customers at X. Now that, that is probably four to five times more expensive. What we're seeing, we saw this last year when Warby tried to go, Warby Parker tried to go, or went public and all birds went public. They opened up their books. And for the first time, what did we see? A ton of losses. And their path to profitability and growth is wholesale and brick and mortar. And whoa, the very business model you said you were going, you sought out to, to, to disrupt, you're essentially recreating. So it's not that DTC is bad. DTC is part of what I believe of every retailer's distribution strategy. I don't think really being pure play, yes, there's going to be these cases where people do well. You could have, a, I know a guy, he's got a $5 million debt in business. He makes himself a million and a half dollars a year. Great business. I would love to have it. Those are anomalies. There's also a large wholesale company attached to that. So he has economies of scale and, and, and he has infrastructure he could tap into. But you and I just starting a business from scratch, calling a DTC and saying we're reinventing the industry, I think it's a little extreme. And I think the valuations are going to show it. People are going to start having difficulty raising money at tech multiples. And I think there's going to be tremendous pressure right now for these operators to start running profitable DTC companies. And that's going to create multi-channel distribution strategies. And I think we're also maybe going to see more mergers. We saw this already with some of the brands. Some of the DTCs getting getting bought by the legacy brands and retailers and vice versa because they need the marketing savvy, the social savvy, some of the agility that the DC, DTC management has. But 
the DTCs need the infrastructure and the organizational and operational know-how of some of these legacies. So together, there's some good marriages there. So I expect to see a lot of deal flow in, in the next couple of years. That's so interesting you say that because, you know, all along when we were seeing like these valuations on brands that looked like as if it was a software as a service company, right? Like right. 10x on the top line. I mean, who does, you know, top line valuations in, you know, a standard business of that nature. And we are starting to see that in the market as well. And to, to your point, the ones that are really smart, we are also starting to see them explore new channels, right? So B2B is all the rage now. You are seeing all brands, right, like that have done really well through pandemic are coming to that realization that we need a good B2B strategy to be able to get into the retailers and start selling into that. So really good advice. Are, are there other channels that you would ask these DTC brands, right, that grew organically, went after valuation that they should be looking forward to, right? Like creating stores is a really hard concept for a lot of these brands. They just don't have the footprint. What would you say? Like what, what should they be seeking to ensure that they can sustain and survive the potential bloodbath of uh, devaluation that might be coming? That is a very hard question to answer because each brand, depending on the, the vertical you're in, the price point you're in, category you're in, the answer is different for everybody. You know, I was talking to a luxury company the other day and they were saying they weren't having much success with Amazon. Well, why are you not on Net-A-Porter? Why are you not on Farfetch? Well, oh, is that a good idea? Yeah, that's a great idea. This idea of selling socially. A lot of companies now are, are doing a lot of social commerce. They're working with media partners and, and they're finding ways to push product through, through content. The suggestion, I think, in, in the headline here is it used to be the customer came to you. You now have to meet the customer where they are. If they're on TikTok today then you better be on TikTok. If they're on XYZ tomorrow, you better be on XYZ. Now, TikTok may not be right for L.L. Bean. I'm just making that yeah, up right yeah. now. I don't know if my father is on TikTok. Yeah. It may be better for a Gen Z and millennial brand. The same way, like, you got to know your channels, right? But I think that over-distribution, too, is very deadly. You know, we see a lot of brands, new management comes in. They cut too much to off-price. They open too many outlet stores, chasing growth at any cost. What do they do? Very quickly, they grow top line. They do have some, some profit, but now the brand gets devalued. No, I don't want to buy it at Nordstrom's for 100 if I could get it for 30 here. Exactly. I don't want to spend for 200 So So there's a very fine line here in distribution, and I think that Wall Street does a very big disservice to our industry because they reward never-ending growth, growth at all costs. And to do that, you have to buy, 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 buy inventory, and you have to keep trying to expand your distribution channels. I think there is nothing wrong, and I know this is not going to work for every company out there, for being a lean and mean, profitable company, having a clean P&L, not being heavily le uh, levered. What is wrong with that? So, yeah. you know, that's what I would preach. Just don't acquire customers saying, oh, the lifetime value is X and never really realize that. Don't buy inventory without testing the product. Find retail partners that are going to support you, not just be transactional. Everyone's like, everyone I talk to today, oh, yeah, I sell in Nordstrom. You sell online and it's a drop ship. Exactly. You, you have all the liability. They don't. Now, yes, they're carrying your brand. They're taking a chance that you're going to send the right quality. They're taking a chance by putting your brand on there. But I'm saying it's, it's a low-risk proposition because you're taking all the risk. So Agreed. also, don't, don't get in bed with – don't start cutting all this inventory without guaranteed sales either. You have to really control your inventory. And that's true whether you're uh, Walmart or you're a $500,000 Shopify business. Makes sense. Maybe to that point, Eddie, being, you know, obviously very focused on sourcing and the soft goods sector, 
Like, what are you seeing today as far as, you know, what type of purchase orders are being cut? You know, kind of going back to your red sw- red sweater, you know, example, like, are you seeing smaller POs for less SKUs? What, what, what trends are you kind of seeing that might? And then I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is that a predictor of what's going to be coming in the next quarter, the next year? Like, how is what's going on in supply chain and the type of inventory that's being purchased? How does that kind of predict what's to come? I always like to say, because people always like to call and say, what are you seeing upstream, upstream? I say it's the closest thing to probably insider trading there is, right? You can see, you can, you can see three to six months ahead. What I'm hearing from the factories, again, this is a, a, a macro at a macro level. So certain categories are performing better than others. Is we're seeing anywhere from a 20 to 30% reduction in order bookings for Q1. Some companies could be 40 or 50%. If you're a home brand that's you know in the mass market and you really took a hit because people are buying less homes and everyone bought a couch. But let's say 20, 30%. Now, why is that? One, people are working through a lot of excess inventory. Two, a lot of things because of logistics issues in the past year came in late. So if a boot came in in, in March instead of October, you hold it. And you bring it back out if you can. And then I think there's a rationalization. People are saying, okay, well, we probably overbought. Well, you definitely overbought last year. And I, I like to speak to that point. But so let's bring it down. Now, does that mean that the entire year is going to be 20, 30, 40% down? I would say no. I think that for the most part, people in this industry swing to extremes. For the first six months of this year, we imported 24% more units of apparel which when you adjust that for inflation, that's 40% more value of apparel in the first six months of this year. Now, ask, answer me this. How, after a record 2021, companies that should have been bankrupt had record profits because there was so much scarcity they could sell at full margin, that they went ahead and thought that the American consumer could consume 24% more product. And this is not a one-off company thing. Collectively, this is, this is the Texas data. This is the import data. So, of course, we're working through an inventory problem right now. I think we're going to see a lot of chase happen. I think, but I think the most important thing that needs to be discussed is that stop referencing 2021. Stop referencing 2019. These are not barometers. There's no historical data right now which is going to tell you what the future is. And I think that we have to look at society first to understand how to, how to, and that's going to ju- help us judge and figure out where, where where to go with our clothing. So in 2021, if you're an activewear, a casual company, you did very, very well. So they overbought, they have a, they're soft now. But what was the mistake? Everyone thought they could sell yoga pants. Not everyone is a yoga pant manufacturer. On the flip side, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine the other day. She runs about a $100 million dresswear company. And I'm like, oh my God, you must be dying. She goes, best year ever. Casual dresses, best year ever. People are going back to work. People are going out. But she goes, Eddie, I went from zero in 2020. There was no dresses to my best year ever. But she goes, I'm already telling my board we're going to be down next year. Not down to like 2017, but down off of this year because this is not the new normal. What's but she's intelligent. She's not saying this is the new normal. Let's grow 20% on that. She's actually saying we're going to go down 10% because that is really where she believes normalized demand is going to be. So I'm wearing a suit today, which is a fluke because I have – a meeting I have to go to and I have a gala tonight. But I used to wear suits three, four days a week. The truth is I go to an office three days a week now. If I was an individual that wore suits five days a week and now I only go in three days a week, the amount of dress shirts I need has gone down by 40%. Whether you're Brooks Brothers, you're Charles Tierwood, you're Canali, you're a custom guy, I don't care. 
There's nothing you can do to get me to wear a dress shirt five days a week now. I always say this, and I've used this analogy so many times, the deli around the corner. I used to buy five chicken salad sandwiches a week. Now I buy three. Essence business is down 40%. I didn't quit my job. I didn't get rid of my office. I didn't move out of New York. Nothing but that one little change in how we operate our lives resulted in a 40% decline in their business. What are they going to do? There's nothing they could do to get me to go in there five days a week right now. But I don't know. The point I'm trying to make is I don't know if this is temporary three days a week. I don't know if we go back to five. Are we going to end up being remote? Are we going to land on two? So my, my caution is to not, the high is never as high and the low is never as low. We don't know what the new baseline is going to be. If you're having your best year ever, is that because I haven't bought a dress shirt in four years and now I'm going to buy five of them? Or I haven't bought a dress in a couple of years and hey, I'm going back out. Maybe I lost some weight. I gained some weight. Hey, you know, all I did all day was run in the park. So I bought five pairs of Nikes in 2020. Am I buying five pairs? What is normal going to be? And, and try to stay as lean and agile as possible until we get to that new level. Because we don't know what that level is. Then what does lean and agile look like, right? From a sourcing standpoint, are manufacturers willing to now do same price, you know, smaller POs as an example? Is that what you do? Like, do you then kind of rely more on just-in-time? And how does just-in-time look like from how much do you order if there is no predictor? Because my opinion is for some of the companies next year, it's going to be cyclical, right? Where you are going to under order and be sitting in a different scenario coming into next year, right? Of course, you know, like your friend, smart people are going to, you know, gauge be like, okay, it's going to be less than where we are, but that could also end up becoming a problem. So is there now the appetite with inflation and everything that's going on for the manufacturers, for, you know, your sourcing to be able to negotiate on that side on a smaller PO, but in higher frequency? Well, let's start by what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like a six or nine month calendar that now you expand to 12 months because you say, I don't want to get caught without back to school, so let me bring it in in June. Let me bring it in in April. Mm -hmm. Oh, now I'm going to predict 12 months out what I... No, 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 no. You're going the wrong way. Now, I understand why people did this when there was a supply issue and you tried to protect yourself because you didn't want to lose your job because you had empty shell. Again, let's just call that a one-off moment in time because that's not a a normal supply chain. I think, you know, we've been studying Zara for as long as I've been in the industry. It's at every business school, it's at every college, it's at every retailer. No one can do what they do. Now we're studying Shein, and no one could do what they could do. Now, I could understand if you're not a vertically integrated retailer, how do you make those decisions? It's, it's how they buy their product. And what I tell people is not all product is the same. So if you're buying a black T-shirt, you could take six months to buy that, go to a longer lead time country, negotiate price because you you're pretty you have a pretty good sense of how many of those you're going to sell in a year and god forbid it comes in a little bit late or a little bit early or it's not there's no it's not a perishable product but fashion is very very risky so i like to say you got fashion fashion core core what do you do with fashion that is the stuff that you have to empower your team to make quick decisions buy smaller units pay a higher price because it's not the cost of the, the FOB that matters, it's the margin out the door. So I'd rather buy 1,200 pieces, air it in, get it into the store. Holy shit, it's working. Let me replenish it. Now, do I need to replenish it in six weeks and air it in, or is it becoming a fashion core problem a product? Can I grandfather it? Do I go mm-hmm. back and do I boated it? Now, the issue is when you look at the American retailers and brands, send me the tech pack, 
resubmit the lab dip. Let me do this. The merchant says this. The buyer says this. The seller says this. The planner says this. Oh, the sourcing says I need it five cents cheaper. Oh, I want to change the trim. Oh, you missed the trend. Someone sees something on Instagram today. They want it tomorrow. You can't wait nine months. So I actually think the factories who get a lot of, you know, oh, they're in developing countries. They're the ones that invest in a lot of technology. They're the ones that put all the money into sustainability because they have to do it without a single order. The, they're more willing to accommodate and work with you, but it has to be a partnership. You may have to take positions on raw materials. You may have to take positions on lines. You may have to give a certain amount of booking, certain amount of grade, so you are able to react. It's not that a factory is sitting there saying like, oh, you want this in four weeks? I could do it. But if your business model is, I want to be moving things out every four weeks. I want to, I know that I need this much fabric. And it's just a different mindset. And it's not bully your factory partner. It's how are we going to change the way we operate? I remember sitting in Porto. There were three designers from one of the largest European retailers. And they were using a number two pencil. And they sat there and they drew things with available fabric. And two days later, they came back, they saw the sample and they bought it. Think of the, 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 the power that that retailer was giving these merchants. I don't know too many American companies that empower their merchants to do that. So I think it's a cultural shift. It's a mind shift. It is possible. Yes, the lines are being re- reform- reformulated a little bit. I think the days of a million widgets at a dollar CM, every factory loves it. They realize that they have to operate differently. But again, it doesn't have to be the same price. It has to be the right price to get it out the door. Maybe to that point, Eddie, we just talked about, you know, the where, you know, the the quantity, but what about the where? Like, is, are you seeing anything as far as, you know, we're talking about all things offshore, but onshore, nearshore, are you seeing any uptick in TOs being cut closer to home? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you would have asked me that six months ago, Every time someone called me for an introduction to a factory in Peru or Mexico, they were at full capacity. They're like, Eddie, we don't need any more orders. Good problem to have. You know, they're trying to scale, obviously. But you also have to remember, even if Peru quadrupled their output, it's still a fraction of China. I think that there's going to be more interest in nearshoring because here's the other thing. When logistics costs got very expensive, it's shorter to ship it from Central America. You have duty savings. You've got the Uyghur Force Protection Act. Well, some, a place like Peru grows their own cotton. It's vertical. Even as we try to become re- less reliant on China, what we're finding out is we're still reliant on China. Because if I'm doing the CN somewhere, but the, but the trims and, and, and the fabric comes from China or Taiwan. Oh, what happens if something between China and Taiwan happened? All the technical fabric coming from there. There is a lot of risk. And this is a headline that's underreported. There's a lot of geopolitical issues right now in the supply chain. A junta in Myanmar, inflation in Sri Lanka, a power issue in, in Pakistan, a currency issue here, a president assassinated there, Ukraine has the issues here, China. So it's not that one place is safe. I just think that we got spoiled by having decades of almost like borderless trade. You placed an order, it came to you. Now I think we have to assess risk. You know, Ethiopia is not part of a go anymore. What does that mean for working in Africa? What does that mean for your investment? To answer your question, the answer is there's going to be more people moving closer to home. I think there's going to be investments made in nearshoring because in order to really have a model like I'm saying and chase and do that, a lot of people already are doing that in China. But why does Zara work in Romania and Poland and you know all those? Because it's a nearshoring model. Yeah. It's for speed. And as you, as you see some of this, right, like it's a matter of diversification of your manufacturing and sourcing capabilities. What would be interesting is potentially some of the larger manufacturing groups in the Orient or Bangladesh, Vietnam, 
Pakistan, India, you'll see them start setting up shops in near-shoring capabilities as well, right? So now you might be dealing with the same partner, removing the risk, but you still got, I, I don't like saying this, but like one throat to choke again, right? Like, and yeah, you need to work with them as a partner. I completely agree with you, not as bullies, right? So I didn't mean it that but, way, but one throat but, to choke, one hand to shake, right? Well, but who made a lot of the investment in Bangladesh? Uh, you know, yes, there's the local uh, entrepreneurs, but a lot of it came from Asia. I, I was on the phone the other day. This is a multi-billion dollar manufacturing group based out of India, factories in Bangladesh. Now they're in Vietnam. Now they're in Guatemala. Now they're here. I'm like, what? what? They find factory partners. They buy into the factories. They take their know-how from people overseas. They bring it here. They, they, they set up. They, it's not a bad thing because you also have years of experience, right? Much better to have someone that has been operating a factory for 30 years, take that know-how and set up shop. Maybe the capital is more secure because they're diversified. You know, also a beauty in being with someone that has factories like that. You could say, yes, there's, there's, there's risk associated with one partner, but God forbid something happens in country A, they have country B, C, D to go to. Yeah. That's why I'm always very pro-agent. I, I, I worked as both an agent. I also worked as both as someone that represented factories directly. And I like the agency model. I'll tell you why. Agents got to work very hard. People, oh, but you pay for an agent. I go, really? Because every time, even with the commission we got, it was still cheaper than what they could do direct or they wouldn't work with us. But put price aside. They have to do all the sampling. They have to do a lot of product development. They have to do design work. They have to do the QC on the ground. They have to do all that or they don't get paid. So unlike a country manager that sits here and gets a salary, an agent only gets the order if they win the order. And they don't sit idle now. They're coming to the States. They're coming there with stuff every day, designing, designing, designing. Look at this new fabrication. Look what I'm doing for this retailer. Why don't you think about this? Also, they bought a million meters of X fabric for three and a quarter. But because of scale, they're getting it for 275. Now, you could get that fabric for 275. When you were going to buy 10,000 meters, you're paying three, three and a quarter. So as we also talk about entering new markets, okay, yeah, maybe you have an office in Shanghai. Maybe you have an office in Dock. Do you have an office in Karachi? Do you have an office in Peru? Do you have an office in Vietnam? When you want to enter new markets, sometimes there's economies of scale and boots on the ground is critical. I am very pro-agent. I also like competition in the supply chain. To me, it's not one or the other. I like to know if I'm if I was a CEO of a retailer, I'd be challenging my my sourcing team to always be counter-sourcing, always finding new partners. And the problem is when you delegate this directly to the head office, whenever I was a sourcing agent and someone said, Okay, Eddie, go work with my team in Hong Kong, I go, no. I said, you're setting me up to fail because if I can prove that I can source a better product at a cheaper price than they do, why are they going to want to expose their shortcomings? They're going to give you every reason not to work with me. I need to do this exercise in isolation of them. And then you need to compare the two and tell me what's important. Very hard to get that through, but you got to get the senior management and they have to, it's not to create, you know, competition in a negative sense, but it keeps everyone kosher. And you also will learn about your inefficiencies. You're also going to learn about what you're doing well. Yeah, completely makes sense. Like the last three or four minutes, I've just been sitting here thinking, you know, here in the U.S., sustainability, first of all, sustainability has been talked about for more years than I've been alive, but it's starting to resurface again, right? I mean, the last 12, 24 months, you start hearing companies talk about the important sustainability, talk about how they are sustainable, because again, it's what the consumer or a segment of the population is looking for. How are you seeing that from... You know, when we talk about onshore, offshore, all these different vendors, does sustainability come in? And like, what are some of the challenges? Like, I think we were talking about in our prep call, 
is there like visibility, right? Is there traceability to who is sustainable? And is that important when, when companies are looking for their, their partners in supply chain? I think there's two important sound bites I'll give you to this. I think there's only two ways to incentivize people or two ways to, to get people to change. One is through incentive and one is through repercussions. And what I mean by that is either you're going to pay me more to do something or you're going to punish me for not doing it. And I think what's going to happen in the, in the business of sustainability is that there's already so much regulation in the EU. Everyone's a global retailer today. We, the Uyghur Force Protection Act may not be specifically about sustainability, but it's about traceability of, of your raw materials and your forced labor, or hopefully on no forced labor. You have the New York Fashion Act, which is on the table. And so when this regulation passes, passed, or whatever, it's coming. And if you don't comply, you're not going to be in business. So now it's not, I'm doing it because my customer wants it, Gen Z wants it, it's our ethos. You're going to have to do it. So that's number one. Number two, we just did this study with Alex Partners. We do an annual benchmarking study. We do it every year. And this was, to me, the most alarming statistic out of the whole report. And I recommend everyone go to Sourcing Journal and download this because there's a lot of things that would really scare you. Only one in four people are investing in talent. You started the hour by saying, you know, there's all these new jobs or whatever. There's only less than 50% of people are embracing all this new technology. Most people are still using Excel despite all the innovation and all the money. So a lot of stuff. And these are the people responding, not me telling you, they're responding. This is their answers, the industry. But the biggest slide that stood out to me was the one on sustainability. 80% of people are now making some type of sustainable or have some type of sustainable benchmarks or creating some type of sustainable initiatives or just sustainable claims, which is great. 80% of companies taking this head on. Fantastic. Less than 20%, 19% of them are tracking it. So what does that mean? And then the third stat was 56% of these people believe they're ahead of their, their goals. Well, how can you be ahead of something that you're not tracking? So right there, now you're lying. Two, you're, you're right for two, two problems. If only 20% of you guys are tracking, that means you're making claims which you don't know are true, which means you could be on the wrong side of the headline for greenwashing. And we know how quick people are out, or call mm -hmm. out their brands. The second thing is when the regulations come down, how are you going to be able to guarantee that what you're saying is true? Oh, you know what? Where are your transaction certificates? Or, oh, you get a WRO, your container gets stopped. Can you prove where your cotton came from? Oh, no. So all of this is for naught if you can't actually benchmark, track, trace, and actually verify. The one word here is accountability. And this shows me that people are not taking this serious enough and regulation will whip them into shape. But it, it's if we are a reactionary industry, and this is going to be something that's going to hit hard because this is going to be very hard to fix overnight. You have to make investments. Yes, there costs money. I hate when people say, oh, there's no cost of compliance. There's no cost of sustainability. Wrong. Your chief supply chain officer, your chief sustainability officer. We had a speaker at our event in June at our sustainability conference. She was the VP of traceability at PVH. That title didn't exist five years from now. That's a company taking it seriously. You have products, the blue signs of the world that could help you set your goals and, and benchmark your goals and track your goals. You have companies like Oritate and FiberTrace and Textile Genesis and Apply DNA. I'm not going to sit here and tell you which one to work with, but they're in business to help you trace your supply chain. Some use tracers, some use DNA, some use block, whatever it is, they're out there. If you're ignoring these companies and not future-proofing your value chain, your supply chain, you're going to get into trouble. That's such a good point, right? Like for all along, sustainability has been top of mind. We have always kind of believed that the consumer expectation will drive behavior. And what is now, you know, in the industry that's starting to happen is the regulations. And to your point, right, the European regulations are 
a little bit more stricter. And given that global standards, most companies are going to start following global standards. And I can, I can pull from two other examples that are completely unrelated to this space. One is GDPR on the information security side, right? Companies were doing all sorts of janky stuff behind the scenes, tracking people. Europe came down and said, nope, not going to happen. That's why you, everyone gets the annoying pop-up these days, right, on every website that you visit about accepting or declining the cookies that are being tracked. And guess what? You can't just do it for Europe. You got a website. You got to do it for the entire world. Same thing with healthcare standards, by the way, on the specifically medical device. The European standards are super high and any manufacturer is manufacturing worldwide. Once you comply to that, you got to comply to the rest of the world. So there is there is compliance will bend people into shape. But to your point, yeah, it, it might take a little bit of time and hopefully we get the time. That's my concern. Yeah, I think GDPR, that's a great analogy because you have the CCUPA or whatever in California and Vermont. Yep. So it's not in all 50 states, but it, what are you going to do? Yeah. I'm gonna, I mean, you could, you could geo-target by IP, but the point is it starts in Europe. It comes to California. It goes to Vermont. It's going to hit all states. It's going to be – this is going to be business as usual. And how do you afford this? I don't have a simple answer. I think in an inflationary environment, the reality is – I don't care what a customer said. Oh, I'll spend more. No. Price is going to become number one because when you walk into Walmart with $100 and the groceries were 50 and now they're 70 and I have 30 left, I'm going to have to do what, I, what is best for my family. Take the luxury market out somehow. The more you raise a Chanel bag, the more people want it. Fine. For the other 99%, price will be an indicator. Now, sustainability, as I said, when it becomes part of, it's like putting like, like an ingredient label on a product. Like you don't buy food today without, without the label or having an FDA. Uh, we need some type of regulation to standardize. So it's going to make it simpler. And also what's going to bring down the cost is scale. So if more people are working with these companies and more people are procuring organic cotton and more people are buying recycled this and recycled that, well, then it brings down the cost. If more people are working with better factories, and the factories now have more money, they can invest in more and more of LED this and water this and laser this. You just can't put all the burden on the factory. You can't put all the – it's got to be a shared responsibility. Makes sense. Eddie, um, we're, we're about at time and uh, definitely want to hit you with one last question though. I mean you're right in the trenches seeing what's going on in the sourcing world and seeing these – you know, what type of POs are being cut. Obviously super – in tune with everything going on in supply chain, what what is your outlook for the next six, 12 months? It's a big question. I'm not an economist by trade. You know, do I think the stock market will hit 25,000 before 40? I actually do. Do I think things are going to get worse before they get better? Yes, I do. Because unfortunately, we're a lot of this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the media can really scare people to, to start to, to act in crazy ways, right? I see layoffs happening. I stop hiring. I stop hiring. You lay someone off. This per it, It's just very, very cyclical. Oh, maybe I don't need to take that advocate. Maybe I don't need to buy this product because negativity brews more negativity, which creates this vicious cycle. However, I said this, I think, a couple times. The high is never as high and the low is never as low. And I think this time around, the fundamentals are a little bit different. I don't have the statistic. I was working out at a gym in Florida, and on the TV there was a segment. It talked about like uh, adjustable rate mortgages. In 2008, I'm making up these numbers right now, but it was something to this extreme. Let's say there was 20 million of them out there. There's like a million now. What does that mean is that even with an interest rates going up, we're not going to see the amount of foreclosures because people are not going to wake up tomorrow and say, oh my God, my mortgage went from 2000 to eight. 
Also, the, the lending, we tightened up our, our standards. So the money was not given out as freely. You don't have someone making 50 grand owning eight properties and trying to become a, a landlord overnight. We still have very strong employment. So people are going to work every day. Maybe their dollars getting stretched, but as long as people are working, they're spending and they're spending and they're spending. So that's going to drive consumption. What we have to do is not, like I said, scare ourselves into this really, really, really negative cycle. Um, could things be challenging? Yes. Could we slow? I don't care what the technical definition of a recession is. I think you ask most people, they say we're already in one. Um, interest rates, yeah. Okay, it's simple. It's simple economics. Interest rates go up, home values get impacted. Money gets more expensive, uh, less people lend it out to businesses. All of these things are true. If you can't raise wages quick enough, then people could buy less. These are all things we all know. But do I think it's going to be a bloodbath like 2008? No. And I think that if people don't think short term, the same way I say, don't buy a million, you know, buy a million t-shirts when you really only need five. Don't just start laying off to make the quarter. It's very hard to find talent in this space. Don't stop investing in technology to to make the quarter because you're going to need that technology. People said, oh, I I don't need e-commerce. It's only going to be 5%, 10%. Well, you didn't invest. You got killed. Look, take the long view. Maybe Wall Street doesn't reward you. Maybe you don't get the biggest bonus ever. But I don't know how you go from giving 200% bonuses in January to laying off 10% of your staff six months later. Too extreme. I hope people are, like we said, if you if people are unable to raise as much money and they, they're forced to run a more profitable business, well, that's a good thing, actually. They'll be more sustainable, no pun intended, for the long term. So I see some short-term pain, but I also think are things going to be better? I said, don't benchmark 2019. Do I think things will be better than 2019? Actually, I do. I'll leave you with two very important an- anecdotes. And it's a very important power of the media and, and how it changes one's perspective. I like to say, if I, I have, if I offered you both a stock and I said in three years, it's going to be up 100%, would you be happy with that? Well, in March of 2020 or 2019, 2019, right, that's three years ago, Target was at $75. I think this week it's like 160. That's more than 100%. No one's saying Target up 100%. Well, I'm Warren Buffett. No, it says stock down 50% because it was 260. The fundamentals of Target are fantastic. Great leadership, great product, great service, everything great. Amazon, Amazon headline, lays off 90,000. Oh my God, the world is ending. If Amazon is laying off people, no one is safe. The real headline should be Amazon added 800,000 jobs and grew their workforce 102% in two years. That is phenomenal growth. If that was the headline I woke up to, Amazon grows staff 102%, target trading at 100% three years. I would say life's pretty good. Let's go buy that. But that's not what the headline says. So it's amazing how we could have a glass half filled, glass half empty. It's perspective here. Yeah. And, and like I said, that's, it's, it's dangerous what, what the mind can do. Sage wise words, my friend. This is this is really good. Thank you. Yeah, love that, Eddie. So, as a way to wrap up, Eddie, can you share with the audience how they can follow you, your handles on social media, and where they could learn more about Sourcing Journal? Sure. So, first of all, definitely visit sourcingjournal.com. We have over a hundred thousand people in the industry reading this. It's it's really. I'm not saying this because I'm behind it. I think being informed is so important today. If it's not Sourcing Journal. Read another publication. Watch, watch another news chat. you got to know what's going on. Regulation is moving fast. Raw materials are moving fast. Logistics, don't be caught uninformed because that's that's a big problem. LinkedIn is a great way to, to, to stay in touch with me. I'm very active on there. 
Instagram, Edward Hertzman, Edward Hertzman on LinkedIn, Edward Hertzman on, on Instagram, Edward Hertzman on Twitter. You can send me an email. I'm very accessible. Just don't slack me. I'm not into all this uh, more of an old school kind of guy. I like to take the yellow cab and I, I like to make a phone call. So, you know, but, but yeah, reach out. You have any questions? If you disagree with what I had to say, I love to hear it. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. You know, maybe you, you are hearing order bookings are up. I mean, you're not, but you know, Hey, no one has a monopoly on uh, good ideas, but no, definitely appreciate the time. Uh, love being here and be interesting to see what the next six months to, to a year brings. Phenomenal. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eddie. My pleasure. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to maximize your supply chain. Available on all major podcasting channels. Thank you for listening and see you in the next episode.